Christian Church. And with that, please make sure you have your Bibles on hand. Uh, Maybe uh, have a a piece of paper and a pen as well if you want to jot down some notes. Uh, Today we pick up where we left off two weeks ago, continuing our study of the life of Paul. And I'm calling today's message, Part 8, The Fruit of Perseverance. Amen? The Fruit of Perseverance. I'm not a really big fan of the reality show Survivor, but I have been watching it this season. Believe it or not, it's season 42. This is the 42nd season of this show that's been on the air for about 22 years. And in this 42nd season of Survivor, I'm enjoying watching this show primarily for one reason and one reason only. And his name is Jonathan Young. It's this guy right here. This guy is an absolute beast. I did a little research on this guy this last week. It turns out Jonathan here is in the Guinness Book of World Records. Guess what he did? He broke the world record for the most amount of chin-ups. That's when your fingertips are pointing towards you. The most amount of chin-ups in 60 seconds, catch this, with 100 pounds strapped to his back. Isn't that crazy? And up until recently, he also held the world record for most amount of pull-ups, fingertips away from you, with 100 pounds strapped to his back. This guy is a beast. I've been watching this whole season of Survivor 42, and as many of you probably know, when you watch this show, every episode, they have some immunity challenges. In the first half of the season, they have these team challenges where you're working with others on your team to get immunity so you're not kicked off the island that week. And then as the show goes along, in the second half of the season, there's individual immunity challenges. And all of these immunity challenges involve, for the most part, uh, having some sort of strength exhibited or stamina or balance. And I tell you, in all the years I've watched this show on and off, I've never seen a competitor like this guy, Jonathan. He's like Thor out there. Remember Thor? <laughs> he, he's a regular superhero. Uh, first half of the season, there's this team challenge going on. There's three different teams, and it's a very choppy day out in the sea. And so they have these ladders tied uh, to the, the, the floor of the ocean. And each of those three teams is supposed to dive down, untie the ladder, and carry it to shore. But because the seas were so choppy that day, two of the teams almost drowned doing this. But not Jonathan's team. He dives down, unties the ladder, proceeds to put it on his shoulder, and walks it to the shore. He notices some of his teammates are starting to drown. So as he's carrying this heavy ladder by himself, he holds on to his teammates and drags them to shore. Amazing. A a few weeks later, there's this challenge where one or two of the team members have to take that little rowboat that the rest of their team is in, and they have to have the rope that's tied to the front of it over their shoulder, and they have to swim to shore, pulling their team in the rowboat. Well, there was supposed to be another teammate helping Jonathan, but once he jumped in the water with that rope over his shoulder, he started swimming so fast, he not only was dragging his team in the boat, he was dragging the lady that was on his team that was supposed to be swimming with him. This guy is an absolute beast. I can't imagine how much strength this guy has to be able to endure these challenges in the way that he does. And all of this with very little food and not enough water. He demonstrates strength and determination and perseverance. And it consistently pays off. And I'd like to say on this Mother's Day that the same could be said about moms. Don't you agree, moms, that strength... And determination 
and perseverance consistently pay off. The same could also be said about the Apostle Paul. As we're studying his life in the book of Acts, we're seeing that time and time again, he demonstrates that strength and that determination and that perseverance, and it consistently pays off. And we're going to see that especially today as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13 and and take a closer look at parts of these next two chapters, chapters 13 and 14 in the book of Acts. When last we left off uh, the Apostle Paul about two weeks ago, he was en route to that area known as Galatia. He had come from the island of Cyprus down here in the south, had taken a boat over to Italia and then to Perga. And from Perga, he took either the western route, the red line, or the northern western route with the green line up there to the first city in Galatia where he was going to minister, and that would be the city of Pisidian Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. Uh, Pisidian Antioch was a Roman colony. It was it was an impressive town in those days. Had a very large uh, population. Uh, historians estimate that Pisidian Antioch had, when you included the surrounding towns, almost a hundred thousand residents. Huge city back in those days. It was the capital and the military center of the southern half of the Galatian province. And the city, with its large population, had quite a cosmopolitan uh, population as well. There were Jews and there were Galatians, there were Phrygians, there were retired Roman military. Uh, It was quite a town, this Pisidian Antioch was. And remember what had happened before he got there. While they were still down in that southern town, if we go back to that map there, when they were still down there in Perga, before they headed to Pisidian Antioch, uh, remember that Paul was sick. Uh, as he writes the letter to the Galatians uh, a year or two later, he lets them know, hey, when I arrived in Galatia, you know, I was really sick. And so we believe he probably had malaria down there in Perga before he traveled over 100 miles over a 2,600-foot elevation increase across the mountains to Pisidian Antioch. And we know that also in Perga, that's where his helper, John Mark, left him. And so Paul, with all of these challenges, is bound to determine to go into Galatia anyway. And that's where we pick up here in Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. If you're there in your Bibles, please say amen. Amen. Acts 13, beginning in verse 14. It says, From Perga they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, uh, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand, and he said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to its people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Verse 23. From this man's descendants, God 
has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, just as he has promised. Just as he has promised. So Paul and Barnabas, a new missionary team of two, they lost their third member, John Mark, when he turned around and went back home to Jerusalem. Those two, they hoof it 100 miles plus over that mountain range into Pisidian Antioch. When they get there, Paul is still probably getting over this malaria illness or whatever it was he had. He's probably tired. His legs are sore from all that uh, elevation increase and all that hiking. But they get there in time for the next Sabbath day. And there they are sitting down. And as he's sitting down enjoying the synagogue service of the Jewish people. And by the way, there was a large Jewish population there in Pisidian Antioch. They're just soaking in what's being shared in the synagogue. And that synagogue ruler or possibly a rabbi in charge turns to them and, and says, Hey, guys. Uh, would you like to share the, a, a word of encouragement for us here? Now, we're not exactly told uh, why Paul was asked to share. Possibly they had heard that he had studied under the great Gamaliel, that great Jewish leader back in Jerusalem. Maybe they had heard that he had been under the tutelage of Gamaliel, and so uh, they wanted uh, such an esteemed student of Gamaliel to be able to share in their synagogue way up in Pisidian Antioch. It wasn't every day a student of Gamaliel came into town. And so that's my best guess as to why they had asked Paul to speak. And so he does speak. He does speak. And he gives a powerful message. And he would later write in the letter to the Romans, he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for for the Gentiles. So even though Paul had been called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, he still had this practice of going first to the Jews, just as God had planned it through Christ. And so he goes to the synagogue first, and typically it was only after the Jews rejected the message of Christ that he would turn to the Gentiles in that town. Luke, the writer of Acts, doesn't tell us exactly why Paul was singled out to speak, but I believe it was an act of God. Maybe it was because of Gamaliel and the connection there, but the Holy Spirit was working there and gave Paul this wonderful opportunity to speak. One way or another, that Holy Spirit presented this, this chance for Paul to share the gospel to this captive Jewish audience. And when given that opportunity, look at what he does. He begins by telling them what they already knew and loved. He begins by going all the way back in the Old Testament Jewish history to the patriarchs. Their fathers. That was a a clear implication that he was referring to uh, Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. He does that in verse 17. Then he mentions Israel's time in Egypt and their 40 years in the wilderness and their conquering of the promised land. Then he goes on to the judges, Samuel and the kings. And in verse 22, he draws his listeners' attention to King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, was a man after God's own heart. And once he mentions King David, he makes a seamless shift to Jesus Christ, the son of David, who is the Savior that God had promised to the world. For the sake of time, we won't spend much time on this wonderful sermon of Paul's here in Acts 13. But I want you to notice that it isn't a man-centered sermon. It is without a doubt a God-centered sermon. Notice verse 17. God 
chose our fathers and God made the people prosper. Verse 18, God endured their conduct. Verse 19, God overthrew seven nations in Canaan and God gave their land to his people as an inheritance. Verses 20 through 22, God gave them judges and God gave them King Saul and God gave them King David. As Paul draws his listeners' attention to the wonderful and and miraculous way that God moved through the history of Israel, he creates this crescendo moving to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he brings up in verse 23, God gave to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Say those three words with me. As he promised. And so these Jews here in the synagogue are getting excited as Paul is relaying to them the marvelous ways that God had worked through their history over the past 1,500 years. Oh, and then he gets to that crescendo mentioning Jesus Christ. It's that natural climax to God's mighty move in the history of Israel. We serve such an amazing and generous God. He moved throughout the history of Israel, and he moved most of all in Paul's day, as he had brought Jesus Christ into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. One other thing I want you to notice about Paul's synagogue sermon here in Acts 13 is that he proclaims the core of the gospel. We could call this the DBR, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Take a look at verses 28 through 30. It says, Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God, I love those two words, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So what is the core of the gospel message that we proclaim to people who need God? The core of the gospel message is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Say that with me. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The DBR of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the core of the gospel message. And just like Paul did, it's wise to point out that there are plenty of, plenty of uh, witnesses to Jesus' death and resurrection. In Paul's day, there were still hundreds of them running around Israel, hundreds of individuals, men and women, who had witnessed Jesus' death and resurrection. So Jesus was, in fact, exactly who he claimed to be. He was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. There were plenty of witnesses, and there was certainly plenty of evidence that confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. Well, what was the result of Paul's impromptu sermon here in the Pisidian Antioch Synagogue? Well, according to verses 42 through 44, As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. 
When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit was opening minds to the truth of the gospel and convincing hearts that needed to repent. Revival was starting to break out in that city of Pisidian Antioch, and everyone loved it, right? Everybody loves revival, right? Unfortunately, no. (laughs) A lot of people do not like a mighty move of God in a place. When God's Spirit throws a big punch, Satan usually throws... A big counterpunch. Have you discovered that to be true? When God shows up in a powerful way and throws a big punch in the spiritual realm, so often Satan throws a counterpunch right afterward. Look at verse 45. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Now down in verses 49 through 52, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now when it says that the Jewish influencers expelled Paul and Barnabas from their region, It's certainly not saying that they put their arm around him and said, hey, guys, can you do me a real solid? Uh, Can you go ahead and leave the town peacefully? You look at the original language there. That's not what it means at all. They were basically uh, giving a cease and desist order, uh, given basically a, a legally binding command to get out of Dodge. And they were basically, just like in the Old West, picked up by the shirt tail and tossed out the door. Tossed out of town. This was not a peaceful and gentle act. It was likely a violent act that had legal backing to it. So, what did they do? Well, Luke, the writer of Acts, makes it clear that they brushed the dust off their shoes. And so, if they were tossed out on the dirt, they probably first brushed off their robes and brushed off their clothes. And then they proceeded to brush off the bottom of their sandals, just as Jesus had told them to do. In Luke chapter 10, verse 11, and Matthew 10, verse 23, Jesus gives clear instructions. When you are rejected after sharing the gospel with a people in a town, he says you wipe the dust off your feet and you quickly move to the next town. That's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did. They hightailed it out of there, went from Pisidian Antioch over to Iconium. According to verse 51, that was the next town they traveled to in the region of Galilee. Excuse me, not Galilee, the region of Galatia. Iconium was located about 90 miles southeast of Pisidian Antioch. So since the average traveler in Paul's day could cover about 20 miles per day, uh, their trip from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium probably took them four or five days uh, in uh, travel time. So... Today, Iconium, interesting city in in modern-day Turkey. It's actually the fourth largest city in Turkey today. It's called Konya. But in Paul's day, it was a Greek city that served as a center for agriculture and commerce. So it was no Pisidian Antioch. It, It wasn't up to that status. It wasn't that populated. 
But it was still a pretty important city uh, there in the region of Galatia. So let's pick up here in Acts chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 1. Let's see how this ministry goes uh, here in Iconium. It says, at Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat Paul and Barnabas and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe. So you take a look at that first verse in verse 14, and it says very clearly that Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. That was their regular practice. They began with Jews, and then from there would reach the Gentiles. And it says a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. That's awesome, isn't it? The Holy Spirit was moving through their ministry in Iconium, just as he had moved through their ministry over in Pisidian Antioch. And so the Holy Spirit's moving, and he's doing what he does. He throws a big spiritual punch. But what happens on the heels of the Holy Spirit throwing a big spiritual punch? Satan throws a spiritual counterpunch. Verses 2 through 4, the Jews refused to believe. They stirred up, as in, of course, all the Jews, because it says here in verse 1 that many Jews believe, but many others, particularly those in positions of power, did not believe. And so they poisoned the minds of others in the town against Paul and Barnabas. So what did Paul and Barnabas do in response? They spend considerable time staying there patiently and sharing over and over again the good news of Jesus Christ, trying to convince people to turn from their sin, to turn from their stubbornness, and accept Jesus Christ. They even perform signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit allowed them to do. But it says the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews. Others sided with the truth that Paul and Barnabas were proclaiming. So church, don't miss this. Even though the gospel of Jesus Christ has the God-given power to unite people, more times than not, it divides them. Okay? This is a new concept for some of us who've been in church for maybe not so long. You know, This is a new idea for many Christians. They tend to think that if they accept Christ, everything will be peachy keen, and everybody will say, oh, how wonderful, you follow Jesus now. That's certainly not the case. You see, Jesus warned us time and again that uh, this would happen to his followers because sinners don't want to stop sinning, do they? They don't. Haters... Don't want to stop hating. Those who already have a religion uh, don't want to change religions. Religious folks don't like to change much. We're creatures of habit. Uh, we get in a rut and we don't like change, especially change that is countercultural and unpopular and requires me to humble myself and turn from my sin. The gospel was preached throughout Iconium, and the town was divided. And according to verse 5, the unbelievers in town, both Jews and Gentiles, got together with some of the town leaders and came up with this brilliant plan to rough up Paul and Barnabas 
and to stone them to death. Isn't that sweet? Well, that was their plan. They wanted to basically do a public lynching. But Barnabas and Paul, according to verse 6, they found out about this plot and this scheme. And so they quickly escaped into Lystra and Derby. They figured they could share the gospel better if they were alive instead of dead. So they go to Lystra and Derby where they continued to preach the gospel. Here's a quick image of what Lystra looks like today. Uh, as you can tell from this picture, it's kind of more of a rural area. Uh, Lystra was only about 20 miles from Iconium. It probably only took uh, Paul and Barnabas about one day to walk there. Now, compared to Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, Lystra was a relatively small and unimportant town. Uh, the population was largely uneducated, largely illiterate, the archaeologist and Bible scholar William Ramsey described Lystra as a quiet backwater, a quiet backwater. But uh, that's where they went after leaving Iconium. Well, if you look at verses 8 through 18 uh, here in chapter 14, Luke records for us some of the details of Paul and Barnabas's incredible ministry in Lystra. God allowed them to heal a man who was born with, born with crippled feet. He had never walked a day in his life, and, and he obviously was a grown man at the time that uh, Paul and Barnabas interact with him. The Holy Spirit allows them to heal this man through the power of Jesus Christ working through them. Uh, on the heels of that eye-popping miracle, the people in that town of Lystra are, are just blown away, and they begin claiming that Paul and Barnabas are the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes. At first, Paul and Barnabas didn't understand what was going on because all these people were rattling off in the Lyconian language, and Paul and Barnabas didn't speak Lyconian. And so they're going off talking in Lyconian about, oh, we've got uh, Hermes and, and Zeus here. And, and eventually, Paul and Barnabas catch on to what's going on because uh, the priest of Zeus is coming out. It's about to sacrifice a bull and send up all these offerings on their behalf. And so what do Paul and Barnabas do? They tear their clothes in protest and say, no, we are not gods. We're not Zeus and Hermes. We're mere men like you are. But let's tell you about the one true God, the creator of heaven and earth. And so here he preaches a much different sermon than he did back in chapter 13 in that synagogue. And in the synagogue in chapter 13, man, he's given the history of Israel and how that crescendoed to Jesus Christ coming as king of the Jews. Here he's speaking to people that largely are not Jewish, uh, people who are largely pagan, illiterate, and they didn't know much uh, about anything other than what they saw with their own eyes and experienced uh, with their own five senses. And so he starts where they are and presents a, a powerful message about the God of creation, everything they could see. He tells them about the God who made it. Everything they could experience, he tells them about the God who made it. And he leads them to Jesus Christ. Look with me at verse 19. Satan's counterpunch comes right in as they're once again seeing progress and seeing the Holy Spirit move in this town. It says in verse 19, some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul. And dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. All I can say is, wow. Just wow. Uh, remind me again uh, why John Mark jumped ship and, and didn't stick on this missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. 
We begin to understand, I think, why John marked you up ship. It was getting too hot in the kitchen for him. You look at this first missionary journey, by the world's standards, this is not a successful missionary trip. Paul and Barnabas were given a cease and desist order and kicked out of Pisidian Antioch. So they go over to Iconium. But after a while, they have to hightail it out of Iconium because there's this lynch mob gathering to abuse them and to stone them to death. And so they go thirdly to Lystra, but that town of Lystra isn't a whole lot better because the lynch mob comes over from the other two towns and actually does throw rocks at Paul's head and knocks him unconscious. They think he's dead, so they drag him from the city. They dump his body in the dirt, expecting the vultures and the dogs to eat his carcass. This doesn't seem to be going well from a worldly standpoint. But God was working together for the good. Amen? If anyone ever tells you that bringing heaven to earth is easy, they are lying to you. hate to break it to you, but it's true. It is not easy sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with people who are very content in their sin. Look at this here. In this sin-cursed world, the gospel of Jesus Christ divides more than it unites. It's hated more than it's loved. And its followers are persecuted more than they're praised. Maybe some of you haven't heard someone say it that bluntly before, but I've got to be honest with you. My job is not to sugarcoat the word of God, but to tell you the truth. It's true. Jesus said it was going to be true. Later in the New Testament, Peter and and Paul tell us it's going to be true. In this world we live in, this fallen world, Jesus Christ does divide more than he unites. He is hated more than he's loved, and his followers are persecuted more than they're praised. After suffering a, a major concussion and lapsing into unconsciousness, Paul was finally ready to throw in the towel, wasn't he? God, I'm done. You know, I, I get the hint. The splitting headache is all I need to know. Barnabas, we're packing up and going home, right? That's what he does here in chapter 14, right? Nope. What does he do? Look at verse 20. After the disciples gathered around his lifeless body. Now, we don't know for sure he was dead and and rose from the dead here. He was probably just unconscious. But either way, when they gathered around his body that certainly looked lifeless, he wakes up, he gets up, brushes the dirt off his robe, and walks right back into the city. (laughs) Is there any wonder why Paul is a hero of our faith? Man, did this guy have grit. Man, did he have perseverance and stamina and strength. He turns around and walks right back into the city where they had stoned him. And the next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. Notice that little word disciples in verse 20. That's a very telling word. Bottom line, there were men and women in Lystra who had become disciples of Jesus. They had become disciples of Jesus. They had turned from their sin. They had trusted in him as Savior and Lord and had started following him. And Paul wasn't about to have them without a pro- leave them without a proper goodbye. And so he goes right back into the town. He regained consciousness. He goes back in, and years later, he would write these words in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And you know that Paul meant those words when he wrote them. Amen? If you can regain consciousness, stand up with your splitting headache and your bruises and your welts and your open sores and turn around and walk right back into the town of those that abused you like that, man, this guy had unearthly, incredible, miraculous perseverance. He could, in fact, do all things through Christ who gave him strength. Paul is such a marvelous example of a Christian who persevered through all sorts of pain and hardship and difficulties. And I'd like to highlight four of the difficulties that God has called you and me to persevere through as well. God calls you to persevere. Amen. He calls you to persevere. Here we go. Number one, he calls you to persevere through abandonment. He calls you to persevere through abandonment. It must have been really hard to hear John Mark say to Paul, I'm done. I'm going home. See you later, Paul. Take care, Barnabas. It must have been really hard for Paul to hear John Mark speak those words. And it must have been even harder for him to see with his own eyes John Mark turn around and walk away. He left them. He abandoned them. He said, I'm done. I'm going home. And that must have made Paul sick to his stomach. But Paul and Barnabas had a God-given job to do, so they sucked it up and pressed on. I like how Pastor Chuck Swindoll says that he writes, One of the marks of maturity is the ability to press ahead regardless of who walks off the scene. Once you've said goodbye, it's time for everyone to move on. Isn't that good? It's time to move on. As you follow Christ and carry out his marching orders, sooner or later, someone will walk out on you. It's bound to happen sooner or later. They're going to leave you high and dry. Maybe a friend, maybe a family member, maybe a brother or sister in Christ at church, uh, maybe even a, a pastor or a Christian leader. Sooner or later, someone that you are doing some sort of ministry with is going to leave you. But you must persevere through abandonment. Because God has given you a job to do. And regardless of who's with you or not with you, you've got to do that job God's called you to do. Number two, God calls you to persevere through surprises and unexpected curveballs. This is another good one. It seems clear that in Pisidian Antioch, uh, Paul didn't know he was going to be given the opportunity to preach on that first Sabbath day. I imagine it was maybe a Monday and, and he's hoofing it through the mountain range saying, Barnabas, we got to get there by Saturday because I want to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I don't want to miss a, a Sabbath day. And, and so they're hoofing it on Tuesday and Wednesday and, and they're making good time, even though he's getting over malaria or whatever illness he had. And he finally gets to the synagogue. He's soaking it all in. And all of a sudden he's given an opportunity to speak. And what does he do? He accepts the opportunity. He doesn't say, you know what, I'm a little tired. Uh, can you call on me next Saturday instead? He doesn't say, you know what, guys, I'm getting over this bad case of malaria. My, my voice is a little crackly today and my, my lung capacity isn't quite right. Can you, can you give me another couple weeks? No excuses. He says, sure, I'll share a word of encouragement. And he proceeds to preach the gospel. He's not feeling 100%. He's not at his very best. He just finished a 100-mile-plus hike over a mountain range, but he preaches anyway. I've heard that the ministry students at Dallas Theological Seminary are taught this 
by their professors. They're taught, always be ready to do these three things. Always be ready to preach, to pray, or to die at any moment. Isn't that good? Shouldn't we have that as a motto for ourselves? You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be an elder. You don't have to be on staff at a church. You don't have to be a church leader. But always be ready, as Paul says, to give anyone a reason for the hope that you have in Christ. Amen? Always be ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Always be ready to pray with someone. I I try to have the habit when someone says, hey, can you pray for me? I've got this going on. Not to say, yeah, I'll pray for you later. But pray for them on the spot. Always be ready. Well, I, I don't pray very well. I'm not very good with my words. Who cares? Pray for them anyway. The Holy Spirit is in you and will give you the words. Amen? So, so no excuses. You know, Paul had plenty of excuses why he couldn't preach or pray in that synagogue. But he threw all the excuses aside and preached and prayed anyway. Amen? We need to do the same. And we need to be ready at any moment's notice if God calls us home. Are you ready to share the word of Christ today? Are you ready to pray with anyone who needs your prayers unexpectedly today? And are you ready to die if Jesus Christ calls you home today? You need to be ready to preach, ready to pray, and ready to die at any moment. Number three, God calls you to persevere through compliments and through criticism. Through compliments and through criticism. Like the others, the one is really Important, this one here, I should say. It's really important. You've probably heard the old saying, don't believe your own press releases. (laughs) That is pretty good advice. Don't believe your own press releases. I've discovered over the years, uh, the truth is usually not on the lips that think that Dane is the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, The absolute truth about Dane is, is usually not found in those who think I'm just amazing and they love all my sermons and they love my counseling or love this, love that, love the other. Usually that's not the purest form of truth. Similarly, the purest form of truth about Dane is rarely on my biggest critic's lips. The truth is somewhere in the middle, right? So don't believe your own press releases. When someone's buttering you up and and saying all these flowery, uh, wonderful, uh, just ego-stroking things about you, that's not the purest form of reality about you. And then when people are saying, man, you're the, you're the spawn of Satan, and they're looking for a 666 under your hairline, uh, they're not the purest source of truth about you either. The truth is usually somewhere in the middle. It's usually not on the lips of my biggest fans. It's usually not on the lips of my biggest critics. I'm definitely not Jesus, but I'm definitely not Satan either. The truth is somewhere in the middle. Don't allow the the gushy compliments from your fans or the harsh criticism from your critics to sidetrack you from your God-given mission. Persevere through compliments and through criticism. Paul was so good at that. Let's follow in his footsteps as he follows in the footsteps of Christ. Uh, Jesus didn't get sidetracked by flattery. Neither did Paul. Jesus didn't get sidetracked by criticism, neither did Paul, and neither should you or me. Number four, God calls us to persevere through pain and through persecution. I doubt that any of us will ever be knocked unconscious by rocks being thrown at our heads. 
But in a, one way or another, all of us will experience pain for Jesus. All of us will suffer persecution for Jesus. Jesus promised it. He tells us in John 15, verse 20, Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But you know what? Every bit of pain and suffering, every bit of pain and persecution that we endure for Jesus Christ is absolutely 100% guaranteed fruitful. Can I get an amen? Every bit of pain and suffering for Jesus is absolutely 100% fruitful. Every bit of it. Before I pray, I, I want to draw your attention to the next few verses here in Acts 14. They're, they're pretty amazing. Look there with me at Acts chapter 14, verses 21 and 22. It says, Paul and Barnabas preached the good news in that city of Derby, And they won a large number of disciples. So, Remember, this is right after he got stoned outside, stoned in Lystra. He went back into the town, stayed one night, then went to Derby. So he goes to Derby. A large number of disciples are one to the faith. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Hmm. I can just imagine some outspoken young Christians pulling Paul aside and, and asking him, are, are you sure you want to come back to these cities? Uh, don't you remember what happened? Are you sure you want to go back to Pisidia and Antioch? Because uh, remember, they gave you a cease and desist order there, and, and they tossed you out of town. Are you sure you want to go back to Iconium? Because they had that plot there to, to rough you up and to stone you to death. Are you sure you want to go into that town of Lystra? Because it was in Lystra that that mob did rough you up and thought you were dead when they stoned you and drug you out of town to be eaten by coyotes and, and vultures. Are you sure you want to go back into those towns? And notice how Paul responds. Verse 22. We must all go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. <laughs> I just think this is awesome. <laughs> Paul, you were stoned to the point of unconsciousness. Oh, yeah. We all go through hardships for the cause of Christ. Yeah, no sweat. No big deal. <laughs> you got to love Paul. We must all go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They trusted in God no matter what. They were going to preach the word of God no matter what. Until his heart stopped beating and his lungs stopped having breath in him, he was going to preach the good news of Jesus Christ no matter what. Large numbers of disciples, new churches in every town, godly church leaders in every church, and the Holy Spirit was bringing revival everywhere they went. Is there any doubt in your mind that if you and I were to ask Paul, Paul, was it worth it? Was it worth it? All the pain and all the sickness and all the rejection, all the abandonment, all the suffering, all the, the, the constant headaches you deal with from that point forward, was it worth it? Is there any doubt that Paul would look you in the eye and say, absolutely, it was worth it. Because anything that I do for the glory of God and the advancement of the, of the kingdom of Christ here on earth is always worth it. 
Nothing I do for Jesus Christ is in vain. No pain or suffering or hardship I endure for Jesus Christ is in vain. All of it pays off in the end because God works all things together for good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I imagine that some receiving this message today, Lord, are a bit discouraged. Lord, it seems like they keep coming up against a wall as they share the good news of Jesus with their family members who are not interested in Jesus. They try to invite co-workers to church, and their co-workers aren't interested in coming to church. They reach out to their neighbors, and their neighbors give them the cold shoulder. Lord, some of us have tried over and over again to share your good news, and it seems like at every turn we come up against pain and hardship and rejection and abandonment and persecution. And God, it's easy to get a bit weary. Satan has been counterpunching as we've tried a lot to, to allow your word to penetrate hard hearts and open closed minds. But Lord, I pray that you would give us strength and perseverance and encouragement to press on just like Paul. And Lord, I want to lift up mothers today. Lord, sometimes moms feel like the work that they do is in vain. Lord, they pray for their kids. They give their blood, sweat, and tears for their kids and for their spouses and for their families. And sometimes it seems like there's no appreciation, there's no thanks, and there's very little fruit that comes from it. Help them to see the fruit, O oh God. Help them to see that there is always fruit when we are doing what you have called us to do. When we are walking in step with your marching orders, there is always fruit on the other side of the pain the hardship, and the suffering and persecution. So help us to persevere and experience that fruit that's on the other side of that perseverance. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we are so glad that you've been with us today in worship. May you walk in obedience to the commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, trusting him and loving him with all your heart and being bold for him as you persevere until he calls you home. You're not doing it alone. We're with you. And so we'll do this together. God bless you as you persevere.